Welcome back to the Investing on the Go podcast brought to you by Fund Caliber. Today, we dive into the world of multi-asset investing with a comprehensive look at risk management. We also discuss inflation in detail and the long-term implications, including the impact of China's working population, the influence of digitalization, and the growing area of artificial intelligence. I'm Chris Sarley, and today we're joined by James Mee, who's co-head of multi-asset strategies at Waverton and also lead manager of the elite-rated Waverton Multi-Asset Income Fund. James, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. Um, let's talk about this fund. Obviously, it's recently been given an elite rating. The, the core purpose of this fund is all about managing risk. So, so for the listeners, just tell us how do you define risk and how do you go about managing it? Yeah, that's right. So thanks for the question. Um, uh, philosophically, then, really, is that we start with risk, um, to your point. So the way we think about risk is not volatility per se, which is how the industry would define it. Obviously, we look at that as part of how we, you know, how we how we manage um, the risks within the fund, but we don't think about risk as volatility. We think about risk really in two key ways. First is underperforming inflation over the time horizon of the fund or over the time horizon of the ultimate investor. So ensuring that a hundred or a thousand pounds invested today or at our inception nine years ago is worth at least as much in 10, 20, 30 years time, uh, or could buy you as much stuff or, 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 or travel or whatever else it might be as it did when it was originally invested. And then the second way we think about risk is permanent capital loss. Um, so crystallizing a loss or investing in something that, that perhaps might go to zero. They're the two key risks as we see them. In terms of how we think about managing out those risks, uh, in terms of risk number one, underperforming inflation over the time horizon, we're invested in equities, we're invested in real assets. So, you know, in terms of real assets, I mean, property, infrastructure, commodities, specialist lending and finance. Um, and these have an implicit or an explicit inflation linkage. And so we think that over time we can compound your capital um, at least in line with, if not ahead of inflation. And we have a track record of doing that. And in terms of permanent capital loss, how do we manage this risk? Well, clearly, we're a multi-asset fund. So uh, we start with diversification across asset classes, sub-asset classes, so currency, sector, style, et cetera. Um, but we also employ hedging strategies. So strategies that are designed to generate a positive return in negative markets and limit what how we add it is we're limiting left tail risk, if you like. So that's how we think about risk in the fund. So let's, I, you, you kind of touched on it there. Can we go in a bit, into a bit more detail? Obviously, the last few years have been very up and down for markets to, to keep it sort of very, you know, low level in terms of just how busy things have been in those in that period. But in terms of protecting capital in we markets, you mentioned using those hedging strategies. Could you could you explain how you use them and maybe give us an example, perhaps even of an, of an opportunity to use that strategy that's paid off? Yeah, happily. I mean, I just back up a second. If if we think about the majority of our allocation in the fund, it will probably always be equities. So the first way to mitigate risk and protect in the downside is to invest in quality businesses. So we invest in individual securities. We're not invested in funds. It enables us more control over the risk that we're taking. And we believe that from a bottom-up perspective, that a value of the business is all of its future cash flows discounted back mm-hmm. at an appropriate discount rate uh, to provide you a present value of those future cash flows. That's how we define the value of the business. So we want the cash flows to be predictable. We want them to be relatively defendable. So we're looking for a durable competitive advantage. 
We want management to be aligned. We're looking for companies to be able or to have opportunities to grow this free cash flow. And we want to invest in businesses at an appropriate valuation. And if we do all of that well, we should protect capital in periods of acute market stress to some extent anyway. Quality businesses tend to have pricing power. Oftentimes, they actually benefit from, uh, from periods of market stress, from periods of economic stress. They tend to deepen their moats uh, or improve their competitive advantage. So investing in high quality businesses certainly will help, we think, over time. And actually, again, we have a track record of, of doing that. We will allocate to fixed income. So within fixed income, really what we're talking about there is duration, government bonds, usually US government bonds, US treasuries, um, uh, sometimes UK gilt. Perhaps we can come back to that um, a bit later on. We do use cash as an asset class. Um, you know, there is an opportunity cost to owning cash, of course, that opportunity cost when cash is yielding zero is relatively high now today, of course, cash is yielding four. So we're getting paid to wait. Um, but to answer your question specifically, so hedging, what are we talking about here? Well, we're looking to find positions that that go up when the market's going down effectively. So they benefit generally from either falling markets, so risk assets, equities, credit, um, or rising volatility, or both. And they're structured to be convex. So um, rather than have a one-to-one -one relationship with equity markets, for example, so equity markets down 10, protection is up 10, or hedging is up 10. What we're looking for is as it gets worse than 10, so equity markets down 10, 15, 20, 35, these positions tend to be up more like 150. Um, and to give you a, a, a real example of that, um, we have an internally sort of proprietary, internally managed protection strategy at Waverton. In in Q1, in the worst 14 trading days of Q1 2020, equity market uh, in sterling terms was down 35%, peak to trough, uh, and the protection strategy was up 150%. We held something in the multi-asset income fund. It was a credit hedge, so it was a it was a put option on on credit risk in Europe. Um, uh, you know, again, equity market down on systemic risk was certainly prevalent, and that position was up three and a half thousand percent. Now we own these positions at the margin in a very small weight. So, so look, I was that, just going to ask. So, in, in terms of that small weight, so just give an example. So, for example, you're not piling into these hedging strategies. It's no. a small allocation within the fund to try and get that precise sort of advantage that you talked about in Q1 2020. Exactly right. So, so, so using that example then is is that was a put option on on the Itrax crossover credit position. It went in in January at a 0.1% position. Over the course of those 14 days, it went up three and a half thousand percent. We were taking profits as it was happening. That was providing us cash, providing us liquidity with which to go to a market desperately seeking liquidity. Mm -hmm. um, and so we can provide liquidity into a market. We can we can pick up. Some of those businesses, high-quality businesses I mentioned, at a much more attractive valuation given our long-term time horizon. It also, you know, hedging also provides breathing room, psychological breathing room for us as investors. Mm -hmm. Certainly, if you have that liquidity and you know that you can reallocate capital, there's an opportunity value of having a pound at the bottom um, versus an opportunity cost of owning cash at the time. Um, uh, but also of our investor base. It's a psychological breathing room as the market's down 35 and we're down perhaps five to eight. Um, you know, it, it, it provides some um, comfort. 
we think. Let's talk about inflation. So sort of the, the, the big word in markets still. Um, so the fund obviously has an inflation target, which I'll let you talk about. But we've seen a lot of people talking recently about, you know, higher for longer. And perhaps when inflation does come down, maybe 4% is the new 2% in, in the new world. Um, first of all, what is your take on inflation? How do you go about sort of targeting it? And then, and then also maybe um, how are you going to go about managing it if inflation is higher for longer? Yeah. So, so we, you know, give how we think about risk and risk number one being underperforming inflation over the investment time horizon, over the medium to long term, over the time horizon of our investors. It's probably unsurprising that we have a CPI plus X target for the fund. So what we're trying to achieve through the cycle is CPI plus two and a half percent on the multi-asset income fund. Um, uh, and, and we do that by investing across a number of different asset classes, as I've mentioned. I'll come back to that though, just to answer the first part of your question. You know, will inflation be four percent, not two percent going forward? It's incredibly difficult to predict any individual economic variable over any kind of time horizon. Um, you know, the economy is global, even if you're looking at just the UK economy, UK CPI, the economy is global, UK economy is global. It's complex. The global economy is complex and it's an adaptive system. So it means that the range of possible outcomes is, is not only extremely wide, but also essentially impossible to predict, especially in the long term. So, so with that caveat, I suppose, in place, that said, um, you know, many of the drivers of long-term disinflation, which we've seen over the last 30, 40 years, um, we think may well be shifting. So, so there was a, a huge uh, introduction of labor or the labor supply increased materially, particularly from China, um, and particularly after China joined the WTO in the early 2000s. That increase in supply of labor means that there is a depressive effect on the price of labor in developed markets. So, so essentially, wage inflation is flat to zero, certainly in real terms, if not negative in real terms, so after inflation. And that may well be changing. Globalization, globalization of supply chains, we've got, we, we, we got to a point of just-in-time inventory systems. All of that meant that the cost of goods to the consumer ultimately declined over time, had a disinflationary impact at the aggregate level. Um, and digitalization itself had a very similar impact. Today, we're in an environment where possibly we're going into deglobalization. So you've got reshoring or nearshoring or friendshoring, however you want to define it. This should, in and of itself, raise the costs of goods, um, raise the cost of goods sold to businesses. And, and usually those businesses try to pass those on to the consumer. So that has an inflationary impact. There is a disaggregation of the inventory systems, as we know. Geopolitical tensions means that there's more investment in defense and in energy security. That in and of itself should have an inflationary impact at the national level. And then now we have a dem demographic, a demographic headwind. Um, so the working age population is actually in decline. Labor supply is down, lower supply, generally higher prices, and that would include China. Um, so, so the working age population, I believe, peaked in China in 2019. Which not many people are aware of. So, so that that speaks to the inflationary dynamics. There are two things really that we think will continue to be disinflationary. One is debt. Normally, when you go from a low level of debt to a high level of debt, using debt can be have an inflationary impulse. When you get to a high level of debt, it can be disinflationary in and of itself. If you think about 
you know, cost of debt now is call it 4% round numbers. Uh, you borrow £100, you now have to use £4 of your income just to service the debt, not even to pay it off and to pay it back. Whereas three years ago, you could have used three of those £4 to invest in the economy, to spend in the economy, um, um, you know, which, which should generate growth. And we think that, that, that high levels of debt has a disinflationary uh, impact over time. And the second is digitalization. Digitalization was a disinflationary force over the last 40 years. You know, I think it's a very risky thing to suggest that that trend is over. Just think about what we've seen, uh, you know, this year in particular, uh, with the with with the onset, I suppose the wrong word for it, but of AI, artificial intelligence, and and that ought to really over the long term have a disinflationary impact as well. So, um, so what's the view? I mean, I've, I've kind of hedged my bets there. The answer, the best way to answer those questions, really, is is to look at what we're doing and what we're invested in. So uh, in the portfolio, you know, we've added to fixed income and we're adding to duration at 4% yield. So that should be telling you really that that in the in the medium term time horizon, we think inflation is is going to fall. Um, not as transitory as we thought it might be, uh, but certainly we think that that uh, it's going to fall from the levels that we're at today. But not necessarily to 2%. Uh, possibly to two percent, possibly below two percent at the headline inflation level. Uh, but, but I would argue that it's unlikely to stay there in the medium term. I think AI is a structural force. I think digitalization in general is a structural force, and that will put downward pressure. But but certainly there are some, you know, that there are some cyclical pressures. Labor supply of labor, uh, particularly in the US, being a very obvious one that, that ought to keep it elevated. And then, sorry, just thinking about the second part of your question: Can we still achieve these returns? You know the, the CPI plus two and a half percent in the wake of inflation, or if inflation is four percent, we believe that we can. So, if you think that roughly fifty percent in aggregate of our exposure is in equities, roughly twenty percent is in real assets, and we believe that these have explicit or implicit, implicit inflation linkage, you know, seventy percent of the portfolio, we think that that the capital allocated to this fund actually you can you can compound at or above inflation over time and we're invested in companies individual businesses high quality businesses that we believe have pricing power um just quickly on a couple of points you made there firstly the um the increase of exposure to, to, to fixed income does that come at the expense of sort of the alternatives or or the real assets bucket or how, where is that where has that come from i guess what i'm looking at is how you know are alternatives perhaps not as essential as they once were in a portfolio? We've been talking a lot about that recently within on Fund Calibre as a view. I mean, where, where do you stand on that? Uh, so the fixed income, uh, increase in fixed income has come partly from equity. So, uh, you know, to give you a range of, of where we've been allocated to equities uh, since, since the end of 2019 to this sort of COVID volatile period, as you mentioned, We've been as low as 41, 42% in equity, as high as 58, 59% in equity. So if you take a midpoint of about 50 um, as neutral, we're currently about 46, 47% in equity. So we've taken a little bit out of equity and allocated into fixed income. Uh, and we, you know, we got as high as 15, 16% in cash more recently. That's been brought down to 10. And we're we're running at a slightly higher fixed income allocation of about 20, 25, uh, about 24, 25%. Uh, today just to sort of round off then maybe just you mentioned those quality that focus on quality maybe give us an example of some of the some of the companies and underlying hold, underlying holdings you have in the portfolio so so maybe talk us through a in one in each area so equities um alternatives and also maybe a, a fixed income holding to explain sort of you know 
what you're looking for within each bucket. Yeah, yeah, sure. So we're we're running 46, 47% in equities. And one of our, our largest allocation within equities is in the US. Uh, we don't do that from a, a benchmark perspective. All of our ideas come from the bottom up. Um, so we're running a, a relatively large position, but if you look at us relative to uh, relative to our peers, we're running more in the US, and relative to the index, we're running less. Um, nonetheless, we find a lot of great ideas, and, and CME, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, is a very good example. So CME is the largest derivative exchange in North America. So its products are essentially interest rate swaps, equity futures, options, uh, etc. And it actually has a pseudo monopoly on certain contracts. So it has tremendous pricing power um, over the long term. Uh, it hasn't used that uh, significantly in its history, but, but it, it continues to build pricing power. And we think it certainly has the optionality of doing so, or there is optionality to it doing so, it has the option of doing so. Um, its competitive advantage comes from its scale and from an inherent network effect, which pulls buyers and sellers into its ecosystem. So more buyers increases liquidity, increased liquidity attracts more sellers, more sellers attracts uh, more, increases liquidity and attracts more buyers and so on. It has a sort of virtuous cycle to it. And it's a very asset light business model. So that means that really the focus should be on revenue growth. Revenue growth is key to the growth in free cash flow. If you recall that the, the way we value businesses is a discount of its all the future cash flows that the business will generate over its life. So revenue growth is driven essentially by average daily volume growth, so the amount of volume traded, um, and the company, and and to some extent pricing, and the company is investing in this. So it's investing in its sales to maintain scale advantage, and in so doing, that furthers the economics of the network effect that I mentioned. Uh, and it's investing in innovation. So it's bringing out new products. New products tend to attract more volume. It's reducing the amount of money one would need to invest in each individual uh, contract, if you like. So from $100,000, which means you and I probably can't trade that individually to $1,000 means we might well be able to if we wanted to. Um, and we think the business is relatively cheap, certainly versus its own history. We think there's got meaningful upside over any reasonable time horizon, which for equities, for us, is equities and real assets is is five years plus. Um, in, in the alternatives bucket, are there any areas you're particularly favoring at the moment then? Yeah. So in the old, the alternative space, the majority of our 19, 20% allocation to alternatives is in real assets. Um, a lot of these are in investment trusts, UK listed investment trusts, a lot of which have had a really tough time of it of late. Uh, and we think that there's been some indiscriminate selling. Um, so one name in particular that we that we like, that we own and that we've been adding to is PRS REIT. So PRS REIT builds and rents family homes for the private rental market. They're passing rents, how much they charge uh, uh, the tenant. Uh, is 25% of the tenant's disposable income, which is well below the 35% government target. So we think that provides some upside to uh, to pricing and, and therefore to revenue growth. And the leases are generally on a one to two year time horizon. So each each of those leases comes up every 12 or 24 months. It provides the company an opportunity to raise rents, to raise the cost uh, or to raise the revenue um, uh, in the face of inflation. So an implicit link to inflation over time. And the weakness in the share price, we think, is really inconsistent with the economic backdrop. If you think about it, in a cost of living crisis, this is exactly the environment where demand for these sorts of properties really should rise. Okay. Um, 
So the problem has been a rise in guilt yields, been a rise in the cost of capital. Clearly, we have modelled for that in our model, uh, and we think, notwithstanding, you know, some pretty conservatively high assumptions in terms of the cost of capital, the cost uh, of doing business for the company, we think there's a fifty percent upside to the price out to sort of twenty twenty six, twenty twenty seven. Okay, and and just lastly on bonds, obviously, very topical area of the market at the moment. Are you? Are you at the sort of the safer end? Do you not you don't need to take a number of risks, or are you looking for opportunities sort of in the investment grade areas in the market as well? Yeah, I'd say the investment grade area. Well, so first thing to say is twenty five percent allocated to fixed income. Uh, we have an investment grade average rating. Um, uh, we have been increasingly, we have been de risking over the last 12, 24 months. Um, we've increased our allocation to fixed income, as I mentioned, and, and while we've done that, we've increased uh, the level of duration that we're carrying. So the level of, of, of protection, if you like, bonds move inversely to, you know, to equity prices in periods of market stress. Uh, so we've increased the weight of extended duration a fair bit in US treasuries, um, uh, in, you know, to some extent in UK gilts. And the way we actually do that in, in US treasuries, we can either buy the bonds themselves, so cash bonds, uh, or we can buy options on the bonds. So we've done both. We've increased our allocation to the cash bonds uh, and, and we've we bought options on the bonds, which provides, again, some convexity in the event that, that um, we do see recession, for example, um, uh, and, and, and bond prices, bond yields come down, bond prices rise. Okay. And just lastly, James, to, to round it all off quickly, um, is it easy to invest for the long term at the moment, given the sort of uncertainty in markets? Do you have to just sort of stick to your principles or are there any, is there anything in particular you have to do differently? It's, it is, it's, it's never more easy or less easy. Actually, what you find is if the longer your time horizon, the higher predictive power you have in terms of, uh, of, of how certainly individual securities should perform. Macro is slightly different. Uh, because of the complexity and the adaptive nature of the economic system and the market system, uh, predictability actually goes down over time in terms of the the companies that we own shares in. Uh, actually, perversely, the predictability rises. So, um, you know, that's why we have a preference for in investing in individual equities, individual bonds. Okay. James, once again, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Since its inception in 2014, the Waverton Multi-Asset Income Fund has demonstrated strong performance. We appreciate the collaborative approach taken in designing this fund, as well as its emphasis on effectively managing potential losses. Being a global multi-asset fund, it strategically incorporates various asset classes to ensure genuine diversification. For more information on the Waverton Multi-Asset Income Fund, visit fundcaliber.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember, we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these companies at the time of listening. Elite ratings are based on Fund Calibre's research methodology and are the opinion of Fund Calibre's research team only. Mm -hmm.